56 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This episode, we sat down with Adam Morse. He's more commonly known as Murmurs on Twitter. He's got that skullcat thing. He's a super talented front-end engineer and designer. We hope you enjoy listening. If you do, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. If you want to chat with us in our Slack team, go to spec.fm slash Slack. 500 people right now, uh, designers and developers, we're all in Slack chatting about everything from tools we use, the podcasts we're releasing, to new jobs that are becoming available at different companies. And every Friday, we do something called Inspect, which is a community critique where you can post the stuff you're working on, get community feedback. Uh, last week, we had Dan Petty on, who not only gave feedback on people's work, but he also posted some work of his own and got feedback from you. It was a lot of fun. I think Inspect is super valuable. Uh, to join our Slack team, just go to spec.fm slash Slack, enter your email address, and we'll get you an invite. Looking forward to talking to you in there. We also have a new show launching tomorrow. It's called Immutable. It's on our spec network. Uh, it's Sam Sofas and myself talking about uh, five topics. This episode is all listener questions. So I think you'll you probably enjoy it. There's, a, there's some stuff about typography. There's some stuff about prototyping tools. There's stuff about uh, learning to code. It's fantastic. So I'm excited. It's going to be really cool. That'll be out on spec.fm. Before we get into this episode, though, we do have two sponsors we want to thank. First up is a new sponsor, Harvest. I've used Harvest in the past quite a bit when Sarah and I had our own little studio. Harvest is a business tool for tracking time spent on client projects. So it's just a good way to keep track of every hour, minute, whatever spent on any given project. You can start a timer from anywhere. They've got a web app, they've got a desktop app, they've got a mobile app. And no matter where you're working, the focus is then on the task at hand because you don't have to like go into a separate app. It's just like it's in your menu bar or it's on your phone or whatever. So tracked hours appear in these visual time reports that they've built to keep the projects on time and within budget. It keeps a very clear statement of everything you've done and how much time you spent. It also ties in with a bunch of different third-party apps, including Basecamp, Asana, Flow, Trello. Uh, you can hook in all of your accounting and finance tools like Stripe, PayPal, QuickBooks. It's like the one-stop perfect tool for freelancers or anyone that's doing any sort of hourly billing. When all is said and done, when your project is over and you're ready to go, you can create an invoice with billable hours straight through Harvest. They have a 30-day trial. When that's over, use coupon code DESIGNDETAILS at checkout and you'll save 50% off your first month. Which is pretty great. So you get two months for 25% of the cost. You can go check out Harvest at getharvest.com and you can start tracking time painlessly. Yep. Thanks so much to Harvest. Our second sponsor back again icon finder icon finder is the largest resource for icons on the web they have almost 600,000 icons in over 10,000 sets whoa 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 yeah they dropped down what they're cleaning up they're cleaning up shop and that keep the quality high keep the curation people 600,000 icons is a crazy amount uh and they're gonna work in any kind of project you're working on whether that's web mobile uh, Android, iOS, they have all different styles. They work in all the tools you're using like Sketch, Photoshop, or straight on the browser. They come in all different file types, like pings, SVGs, JPGs. Their icons are licensed for commercial projects. So if you need to use them in a project you are selling, that is totally fine. And one of our favorite things about Icon Finder is that when you sign up and pay for their Icon Finder Pro subscription, 
70% of that money goes straight back out to the original designers of the icons. These are designers that we know who spend their time crafting these gorgeous icons and Icon Finder makes sure that they are well compensated. If you go to IconFinder.com, sign up for Icon Finder Pro. It's just nine bucks a month for the starter kit. That gets you 25 downloads a month. If you use the promo code ROBOT at checkout, that'll tell them that we sent you and save you 50% off your first month. We're huge fans of Icon Finder, so go check them out at IconFinder.com. And with that, let's get into episode 56 with Adam Morse, AKA Murmurs. So my name is Adam Morse, and I'm currently doing design work with The Grid. Uh, so basically trying to yeah, put together some artificially intelligent robots that'll remove silly design tasks off the off the workflow putting yourself out of a job yeah i don't think of it like that there's this uh photo this is a podcast so talking about a photo is probably a good first step um yeah it's this guy standing in front of some fuse board that has to do with how computers used to run and his job was to yeah when something blew he would have to like figure out what needed to be replaced but it was a very manual like test one by one and make sure all these combinations work you know eventually somebody automated that and i don't think he got fired i think he just did different stuff and probably more productive yeah, stuff right and so um yeah i think anytime i hear automation i think you just get to not worry about dumb stuff that's just known right? it's more free time yeah exactly more cat gif viewing uh more design thinking time no seriously you know i mean the last four or five jobs i've had have been to do the same type of stuff and it is kind of frustrating because it's stuff computers should just know um so yeah i think it could be good to yeah allow for more like actual product design testing is it why you name a lot of your stuff after time travel just uh, all about freeing up time <laughs> something like that no i love that's uh the watchman it's like i really love that book I like the movie too, but I really liked the book when I read it and they talk about tachyons and I thought that was a pretty cool word. And so when I was trying to, yeah, come up with this framework name, I was like tachyons. Nobody has that one yet. So why build your own framework? I mean, why not? Right? No, I think, uh, I was, you know, I wasn't really married to building something custom, but I had a bunch of questions. And so I was running a lot of experiments and just like putting different architectures together and then seeing what would happen. But yeah, I was writing CSS for the print world for like three and a half years. And that had tons of really unique problems to printing. What does writing CSS for the print world mean? So, yeah, we had this stack that would process HTML and CSS and then generate a PDF. Okay. So we would build all these data visualizations and have dynamic text um, and messaging that related to the graphs. So, yeah, um, we printed on fixed sizes, so there are benefits there. But there are tough parts, as in in the print world, you can't have bugs at all. Like when you're printing two and a half million of something and mailing it to people's homes and you're representing a business, in this case a utility company, Nobody likes mistakes. It's really, really bad. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, you're kind of tasked with software bug free <laughs> development, which is, you know, I mean, what's your last stretch of like writing zero bugs, right? And touching code. It's pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Today. Uh, right. Straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think mine's about a one day cycle. I didn't write any code. So <laughs> cheating. Nailed it. So anyway, yeah, um, it was interesting to come back to the web and have a bunch of questions as responsive design was a new thing. Um, what kind of questions? Yeah, like what are the performance implications of how you architect your media queries? Like, does it matter at all if you have like the same media query declared 75 times in, you know, 80 places? So nested? <laughs> yeah, not even just nested, but um, depending on how you might, do it on a component basis you might do it on a media query basis like does it actually matter and uh how much is too much css like i was building this website to be responsive and i think i had it's like 45 kilobytes of css minified and gzipped i had no idea if that was a lot or a little or like too much or too little if i like shouldn't worry about it i mean what would you say is too much css if like somebody asked you that question 100 kilobytes 100 kilobytes it's a great question. My old rule uh, back when I was doing front end stuff like every day was if if at any point all the requests combined to over a megabyte were doing something wrong. Okay, sure. Yeah, it's definitely one way to look at it. I could, like that question to me was like I really had no idea. And I'd been writing CSS for so long. Mm-hmm. It was not on the web. But in the print world, we had these performance problems because... I mean, two and a half million requests doesn't sound like a lot to me in terms of like scale, right? Seems like it'd be arbitrary for a computer, but it's not uh, when you're printing because it's like all these PDFs and this print company has to rip these like thousand page print assets and like print them in these like thousand or 20,000 page uh, doses. It takes them like hours upon hours to rip these files and like trying to do performance testing is like this really slow feedback loop and it wasn't stuff you could google like nobody was like oh this is how you optimize your css for like turning it into a pdf so you know we had to like read the pdf spec and do a bunch of like legitimate testing of performance so when i came back to the web i wanted to know like what painted faster like did file size matter like our file size didn't matter in the print world um, but how the file was structured mattered, like if we had transparent layers, uh, which is a weird concept um, to not really care about file size. But that's not what affected rip time the most. But on the web, I was like, well, you know, is 40 kilobytes, is 100 kilobytes a lot? Is that, do you just care about like the whole page weight? So, yeah. So I put to, like the whole CSS language in this one file because I wanted to see how big that was. CSS isn't that big. It's not JavaScript. It's not a programming language. It's like display block, like display inline. Mm -hmm. And the whole language, if you do that and like have margin zero to 100% on all sides, it's only like like 20 kilobytes. It's an interesting baseline to think about 100 kilobytes or 200 kilobytes or a megabyte, you know? I mean, yeah, I guess all that's also a little bit dependent on the project too, right? Right, yeah. 100 kilobytes is arbitrary, but that's my baseline from my, my last job where like sure. I think we were over that and it was like, oh, maybe it'd be cool to get under that, you know, sort yeah. of arbitrary still. Yeah. I'm usually pretty specific about it. Uh, back when I was doing this, I was also working for a print company. They did a lot of wedding invitations. I designed some websites for like Michael's Craft Stores and David's Bridal. Like I was making wedding invitation personalizers, the most mind numbing job ever. And I ended up having to teach like a front end team in China how to do it because they were using like 
super old school, super declarative CSS. It was like everything was repeated like 30 million times in just this massive files. It had to have been 20, 30,000 lines long just for the personalizer. It was insane. That was like the first time that company had ever like really spent time thinking about performance. They were like, well, as long as it's secure, we're good. They also didn't think about security in like a modern way at all either. So it's a whole thing. So all these questions and thoughts about performance and, and media queries and on and on, this all led to tachyons. Uh, yeah, I think there was some evolution there. I mean, one of my questions was how do you build UI with a team of people that all have varying levels of skills within front end? Um, and you have some people that, you know, I had worked with enough teams and been doing it long enough where I came to the conclusion, you're never going to work with a ton of people who care about CSS all the way. They're only going to be so passionate. Um, a lot of people just want to make the changes they need to make to an interface and they want to get out and that's it. Um, so one of the questions, you know, that I think a lot of people try to answer is how do you create a system where somebody can change things and not break anything else. And I think that that slows a lot of people down, a lot of companies down from changing things um, because they can't change them without not breaking other views. I think when people talk about having brittle front-end architecture, that's what they mean. And that's, you know, when you see really crazy selectors, that's generally this like concept of encapsulation right like mm -hmm. they're trying to encapsulate it within the selector scope that's dependent on dom structure but the other way you can go is encapsulating things in the html so part of it was trying to answer this question of like how do teams move quickly um how do you get people who are really experienced with css and people who are not really experienced with css get themselves to not shoot themselves in the foot right like you kind of want to limit people's weaknesses and one people's weaknesses like nobody reads the spec like nobody understands like these core tenants and that's fine like i wouldn't expect a bunch of people to all read the spec but it's super helpful to understand like how things are working and there are all these ways you can let your users of this code like shoot yourself in the foot so but then for me, it was also like, how can I build stuff really fast? Like not just with a team, but like, how does my brain think about building UI? And what are things that I think are abstract? And like, what do I get annoyed when I have to decouple? I think that was like the biggest thing is like this concept of like what's being coupled together and just constantly wanting like these really small Lego bits that I could like mix and match. But I think the the real catalyst was just this frustration of like feeling like I was writing the same CSS for the millionth time. And I was like, I just don't, this is not different than anything I've ever done, but I'm like still writing code. And that's so weird. So <laughs> another framework that's come up on the show a couple of times is Brent Jackson's base CSS. Yeah. So how would you compare what you've written and what he's working on? Sure. So, I mean, both of us were really pushing those concepts when we were working together for this year, um, when he was living out in San Francisco and... Yeah, I mean, he's an amazing visual designer, um, and he really pushed my concepts of design systems thinking and how values should relate to each other and, yeah, just, like, the relative nature of design. And I think that I was kind of pushing him on understanding how CSS affected HTML and different tenants of, like, performance um, and talking about, like, mobile-first architecture. Uh, so, yeah, we started to just ask each other a lot of questions and it's one of those things like I can't even remember whose idea was what but 
for him, base CSS was him trying to solve his UI problems and do the same thing, abstract the stuff he wanted to abstract. You know, one core difference is he uses Flexbox and I don't use Flexbox. Any particular reason? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it doesn't solve problems I have yet. Um, and it's at the expense of like supporting some browsers, which I mean, kind of depends on your stance there, but I can kind of achieve anything I want to achieve um, so far. So I might just not have run into the, some of the problems that other people have run into. You only know the problems you've tried to solve, right? Vertical centering. Yeah, I use display table with like an embedded element, like set to display table cell and align it that way. Um, and there's sort order. I know that some people use that, but a lot of my designs don't lend themselves to needing that. Um, outside of that, I think, you know, he's trying to solve his problems. And um, I think for me, like I'm trying to be able to, within reason, like outside of brand colors, you need to customize, just build this thing that can build like any website, right? And it can look drastically different than anything else. Um, there's no theme, right? It's just like, it's almost like an API for CSS in your HTML. And, you know, like here are all these display patterns you can replicate. So, I mean, selfishly, it's really for me, I try to do everything out in the open because that's how I learn from other people. Like um, they're just... You know, Nicole Sullivan, like her work has profoundly impacted my like approach to writing CSS and like her putting all her writing and like projects out in the open um, and her tech talks like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems silly not to do stuff out in the open. I don't necessarily advocate for people to use my stuff necessarily, <laughs> but if people want to take stuff from it and build upon it and make it better, I mean, uh, it seems cool to give them access to do that. But yeah, I think jackson and i have different problems and that he's building his own kind of web apps and has like these very discrete patterns that he wants to be able to replicate and um i'd like to try to be a little more flexible i don't know interesting and you guys are working on css stats together right yes i feel like he should be getting the bulk of the credit at this point i'm kind of like the idea guy CSS stats, is, <laughs> it's awesome. I'm like, I'm like, what if ja what if JavaScript could do this? And Jackson's like, it can't do that. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, really though? And then two hours later, he's like, yeah, here's a link. And I'm like, great, cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like we, that was something I started to put a proof of concept together for when we were working together last time. And he was doing a bunch of um, work with Angular at the time. So he was like, yeah, we could make this. Uh, I was doing it locally on CSS that we had in our code base, and I wasn't really thinking about making it an actual web app. And he was like, let's turn this into a web app really fast. So um, we started to learn JavaScript development a little bit, and he got a lot farther than I did, admittedly. So yeah, we're coming out with a new version, though, that we're excited about. Hopefully that's going to have some pro features and allow you to like use the GitHub API to track your CSS files over time, which will be kind of exciting because you'll be able to see on a contributor level, like who's like deleting a lot of CSS, who's like adding a lot of CSS, but, but not just like file size, like who's, um, you could almost start to measure like who's adding entropy and like who's taking away entropy. I guess that's not really possible in thermodynamics, but... <laughs> But this is CSS. Yeah. You can kind of get a sense of like who's adding abstractions mm -hmm. and um, who's kind of adding like code bloat and which areas. That's cool. What are the other projects? Are you guys working on? Yeah, you're working on a lot of other projects. Mers Jackson or Mrs. Jackson or whatever it is. Yeah. 
that's uh i wish we did that a little more it's tough when we're like you can work remotely on music but it's a lot better when you're in the same room what does post future beats mean yeah i mean i think we didn't really know how to categorize the music and we both really love time travel so we always joke about our music coming after the future yeah it's not a very good joke um (laughs) when which of the parts how do you edit the stuff out when does that happen uh yeah so that started just we were roommates and uh he was making a lot of electronic music at the time and so we would just time box making a track in four hours and we would just sit and keep that constraint and so in the beginning it was very much just like come up with two different drum tracks and then come up with the bass line and then come up with like a verse and a chorus essentially and then try to bounce it out into the song and like do all the arranging and have a couple transitions in there yeah it's pretty much stayed that we generally don't work on things for more than three or four hours and then like once we hit that time limit we just start something new i was gonna ask how you manage to juggle all these projects with now working full-time on the grid but that sort of answers it sounds like a rigorous (laughs) time management yeah no i think um i work in a very like intensely focused manner and then with like periods of decompression of doing nothing but laying on the floor and daydreaming about stuff but then also just like going on a tear for a little bit of time you know in hong kong like i have such a different schedule than when i lived in the states and so it's a lot easier to kind of time box like i try to write for an hour a day and then like sketch for 30 minutes a day um which has been yeah kind of a welcome addition to my schedule um it's allowed for some consistency but yeah i think like time boxing things helps a lot for me um keep focused on like a bunch of different projects but it's also kind of like whatever I actually want to work on I don't really feel like an obligation to I mm-hmm. don't know maintain any of the projects or anything what are you writing about so yeah a few months ago I started to work on this book about grids uh unrelated to working for the company the grid but yeah there's a lot of great work that's been done about the study of visual design visual design systems, um, you know, books have been this format where we've been tricking people into reading like thousands upon thousands of pages, right? And so much of the internet is just about like getting somebody to read a thing. And there are things that we just know that can aid in the readability of interfaces. Um, So it seems silly to not leverage, I don't know, the things people have studied about books like what what are some examples uh you know measure measure is a really common mistake online uh where you get these line lengths that you know it's just like 240 characters wide when it should be like 65 to 80 i think the uh joseph Mueller brockman talks about 45 to 75 45 to 75 with 65 being ideal i think or 66 being ideal but it also depends there's a few variables there like newspaper columns i think are closer to 45 so it depends if it's like columns that justify text next to each other but uh, but i think even 80 i think you're like still kind of in this realm of being okay it's the wild west like there's just no management Mm -hmm. at all Mm -hmm. it's like however wide your screen is here you go just fill up the space it's fine no big deal yeah exactly but all these books about grids and there are all these wonderful concepts for print, but they also don't address that concept of like, how do you design stuff for a cinema display and a mobile phone? You know, most readable font sizes, you don't even have the width to have 80 characters on a mobile phone. 
It seems like most people actually focus on the cinema display instead of the the phone. Right. No, it's true. Um, I mean, people either go in one direction or the other, where it's like you really have different design concerns across the devices and mm-hmm. you know how people interact with them. So it's silly to me to not try to take advantage of each that they you know have to offer. Mm-hmm. You're mobile first. That was a very specific assumption. Yeah, it's like I mean, well, you mentioned. Why would you even say that? Because you mentioned it earlier. Oh, so I think there's a big difference between mobile-first design and then mobile-first CSS architecture. CSS architecture is just this, like, code thing, right? Where, like, mobile-first, I feel like, is this design process. So the way CSS gets parsed is, you know, you have a phone, and it's got this, like, device width. Mm -hmm. And so if if it sees this media query that says, you know, min width, like, 60 EMs, right? 60 is probably bigger than most mobile phones. It doesn't read anything in that media query, just stops reading. So mobile first CSS means like your global classes that applies to like every single device. So that means mobile first. And then you override at larger sizes. Yes, at larger sizes, right? So you never, max width. Well min width, right? Min width. Oh, min width. Queries. Yeah. Um yeah, I make that mistake all the time. But yeah, so you're just triggering things once they get to a certain breakpoint. So what happens there is you presumably have your highest performing devices parsing the most amount of code and your lowest performing devices parsing the least amount of code, right? Because the mobile phone's not going to parse, yeah, for like these three additional breakpoints that are larger than a mobile phone. Now, that's not a direct assumption you can make. Like there are definitely phones that have faster internet connections and some things with larger screens but it's a general rule of thumb that you can kind of follow it's like the opposite of how i learned media queries probably most people too like you start big and work small because it's easier it's easier yeah yeah totally like when i first started writing media queries it was like build a desktop view and then override for mobile but yeah like that's not the concept of the cascade right like anytime you're overriding things you're kind of most likely using the cascade incorrectly. And there's a big difference between extending things and overriding things. But if you're overriding a lot, I think that that's just a, you know, an indication that your architecture is not helping you. Something, something, use CSS stats, take a look at your selectors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, CSS stats is awesome. That, that was a great tool. Thanks. I mean, we definitely uh, have been bound by our agency as like JavaScript developers. Hmm. There's a lot of other stuff we would love to do with that application because, yeah, we, I mean, I always joke, like, I don't think people are bad at CSS. I think the tooling is just horrible. There aren't fast feedback loops to answer a lot of questions. So what does your tooling look like? In terms of... How do you write CSS? How do I write CSS? I mean, I kind of stopped a little bit. Like, I just have these tachyons modules that i use um generally when i'm refactoring stuff because your largest abstraction points are generally layout spacing like margin and padding yeah all these little utilities font sizes so oftentimes i just kind of use that stuff but it depends on the project right like um you don't want to reinvent the wheel so if somebody has something that's well documented that you can use i try to do that but the way i try to write CSS is to not write it, <laughs> to reuse something that's already there or break something up that's there into smaller bits and reuse those components. That's a great answer. Do you use preprocessors to write it all or do you write it all as CSS? Um, that's a tricky question. I mean, I write really just CSS syntax. Like I don't do for loops. I don't have, uh, you know, don't want to repeat all the stuff uh, Margato said. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, keep it super simple. 
I use post CSS in terms of my personal projects and, you know, I have auto prefixer and, um, a way to import files and a way to have variables. The only thing I use variables for are colors so you can propagate them out to the various like utilities. You know, I have this one set of colors and I use that to define all my border colors, all my background colors, all my foreground colors. Um, so, you know, I, that I'm cool with, but I don't really like complicated variables and all that stuff. Like they just seem to be unnecessary levels of abstraction. They don't keep your outputted code more dry. Yeah. Is that, um, which is what people always cite as like wanting to do certain things. But mm -hmm. if you actually read the CSS, it's like, well, this is the same. So do you use color functions individually when you're like, I guess darken or whatever it is. Sure. Yeah, I think that that... In each call? Do you do that at the selector? I don't really do that. Okay. Um, but that's... I'm not against doing that. I generally just am a little more fine-grained about how I pick colors, and I kind of will do it. Um, yeah, I'll do that a variety of different ways, whether or not I'm, like, sketching it out in the browser and just, like, picking hex codes. Uh, sometimes I'll actually use Photoshop, which mm -hmm. is... The, one of the rare times that I'm like using Photoshop to design something. The $10 a month color picking. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, colors is like, you know, I studied color theory a bunch in college and then since. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's like a pretty interesting problem that I don't like to bike shed too much of my time on. So I like generally pick them fast. Well, now I'm going to ask you to spend a little bit of time on it. Yeah. Because, okay, so I approach it very mathematically. Sure. Everything is a mathematical function of another color. Right. Yep. Brian randomly picks from a color pot, yep. which I thought a really interesting thing when I was looking at his sketch files last night because he's basically on the mathematical functions that I use, except that he didn't mean to be there. Mm -hmm. Just means my eye is that good. Well, there's definitely a lot of parts of color that break down to mathematically based, mm -hmm. but there's also a bunch of stuff that I don't believe we have silver bullets for yet. And so you know, on the color spectrum, there are colors that can be influenced a lot more highly than some other colors. So, uh, you know, color is very, very relative. Like there are people that have perfect pitch in music, but nobody has perfect color. Like there are no painters that can just produce the Coca-Cola red with like any degree of certainty. And Coca-Cola red's a thing that we've all seen and painters are really good at studying color, but it just wouldn't happen you take this into account and it's like an interesting thing to, I don't know, think about just like how relative everything is and how much that matters rather than like these absolute notions of values. But within the spectrum, like, you know, there are all these optical illusions that if you check out any like color theory books, they'll show you, right. Of like making two colors look like four colors or four colors look like two colors. And you do all these studies and it's so interesting to see like how, how vastly uh, different to or like one color can look within this like one image and so that's where the math part is interesting to me of like what are there any actual mathematical patterns there are there vectors that are there um it's something we're trying to automate with the grid right now it's like having this whole color system that's based off colors that they pull out of photos and it's definitely easy to get like small palettes that work together but stringing a bunch of them together is like definitely a more complicated procedure for sure interesting i definitely do it like mathematically based within photoshop as i'm like kind of iterating through th uh, through things um and i try to keep that scale 
related to whatever other scale I'm using to do mm-hmm. sizing. But there are totally times I deviate from it. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to cheat it over here. And I think that's okay. Totally true. You can go crazy on the system and math for color, or you can just pick something that has good contrast and, and looks good. Well, the reason I thought it was so interesting is because I'm like, duh, it should clearly be a function of math. But then I see your stuff and you're not even paying attention to it. And you're like, yeah, it looks pretty good. It looks looks pretty solid. I think the important part is it's like whatever tool works for you, right? Mm-hmm. And there are so there are definitely people who can eyeball certain types of things and just make it work. And I'm not smart enough to do that most of the time. So I need to use mathematical concepts to hmm. <laughs> size things out. I write usually just generic functions for like all my CSS and I'll just pass in a variable and use whatever it outputs. Just trust the math. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole different thing. But yeah, to answer your question, I write really boring CSS and I use preprocessors, but literally just to import files. Boring CSS is probably better CSS. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Depends what you're trying to do, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people have a lot of different problems. And I've I've tried to solve a very like limited set, which is mostly keeping things on the page. That's a good start. And yeah, text, canvas, media, and making it so users can read it and interact with it problem free. But that always seems to be some non trivial problem with a lot of UI architecture. So we got to talk with Jacob Thornton uh, last time. And I don't know, we were talking a little bit like higher level about CSS as like a language for styling. Mm -hmm. You're approaching CSS like, how can we make this better? How can teams work with it? But like CSS as a language. Um, as a as a tool for designers, are you optimistic about it, or do you feel like it's broken and we're just making do? I mean, you also use JavaScript, which is one of the most frequently cited like bad languages. Sure, I think there's a bunch of stuff that I'm aware of CSS is not the best at, but I think it's that's like okay. I think that I don't know. It's just this tool set. Like if I was going to work with metal, like I wouldn't constantly think to myself like man fuck gravity right maybe i would think that but like (laughs) i would just think about like gravity interacts on metal and that's like a part of this thing that i'm building and i guess that that's how i think about building stuff for the web like if it's really complicated like i'm into trying to do difficult things but there's a lot of complicated stuff where i'm like i don't think that adds any value to my users and so i really don't care to spend a lot of time on it So for me, CSS is pretty perfect. Like I can build, I haven't found a limit for my ability to build interfaces that are responsive and like designed to the strengths of an individual like screen size. Yeah, I mean, that's cool to me. Like that, you know, when I look at iPhone apps that have been updated and now they're like letterboxed and like that doesn't happen to a lot of websites that I build. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's pretty neat. Like they're not letterboxed when you get a new screen size. Like mm-hmm. it just hopefully works uh, well. Um, so I don't know. I think that that's like a pretty beautiful medium to be operating in. And so I know that it probably has deficiencies for some people and the models that they have in their head of like what they want it to do. But I more try to find like what it can do and then do that stuff. I don't mean for that to sound silly. It's like really, yeah, I, I just am like, okay, sand, like what kind of castle can we build? And I think given sand, yeah. <laughs> given sand, <laughs> I think uh, what most people seem to agree on is that it breaks down when you work with teams, because as an individual, you can have like a very clear system in your head. 
but it's just really hard to transfer that system to so someone like, else's brain. Like English? Yeah. He, what? English? Hmm? It's kind of a bad system. We had an argument today in the office about whether S apostrophe should be used as our style choice, which, I mean, that's the correct answer, or S apostrophe S for multiple plural or multiple possessive. Wait. Plural possessive. What? I'm bad at English. It's bad language. I'm telling you. I don't even know. I don't know what you're saying. I don't know any others. So So say authors, the word authors. Okay. Apply an apostrophe to the end. That is the plural of several authors. Okay. Well, some people write authors apostrophe s. That's incorrect. Yes. But it's not like a hard and fast rule. Certain people, like certain style guides, suggest it, which is ridiculous. That's a bad style guide. And people (laughs) spell gray with either an e or an a. Isn't that English and American English? O U. British English, American English. Yeah. I feel like really cool designers spell it with an e. That's how. But. Yeah. John Gold spells it with an e. I mean, he's really cool. He is really cool. I don't think that necessarily makes English a bad language. Well, you're saying that CSS has issues because people use it differently. No, I'm saying that one of the large, the the times that CSS breaks down is when different people use it differently. Um, English. If I were to write an email to you with gray with an E, you would know what I'm talking about, right? Like that doesn't break our ability to communicate. Whereas CSS... If you sent me an email where you said gray and that was it, that'd be the weirdest email ever. (laughs) But I would probably guess it was someone's name. I don't know where we're going with this. (laughs) I'm just saying like there's a lot of bad systems. Sure. We can't fix all the bad systems just because people use them differently. Yeah. No, I mean, your point, if my, one of my favorite things about CSS is number one, it's all open source, right? Like send it right to your browser you mm-hmm. can just open it up and look at it you don't have to send me an email you can just write it in css yeah that's true <laughs> yeah. um and so and how do most people write css especially if they don't really know what they're doing is like boom bottom of the file write this little bit in boom override some stuff mm-hmm. exclamation save, point out. important and the next person comes along and is like oh man well i know where to add this bottom of the file so you almost get this chronological it's an aeroboros of css <laughs> like, it's like javascript doesn't like this right as far as i know uh I, html's not like this you can't just look at a website and see like <laughs> like oh the, obviously the html at the bottom is the most recent but in css this is generally true and so if you read somebody's css in entirety like you start to see the systems break down and you see people having the exact same thoughts but in a different room at a different time trying to solve what seemed like a different problem. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd been back on the web for a year and I, you know, I'm like reading all these blog posts about how to write wicked sweet CSS on the web. Whoa, whoa, whoa. what back on the web? Well, I meant like I'd been working at this print thing. Right? Oh, okay. So now I'm like back, I'm like building websites. I'm like, oh man, there's like a lot of problems here. Okay. And so, um, yeah, so after a year, of reading every single blog post I could get my hands on about like how to write cool CSS, like reading every single framework, all their code. I'm like, man, like what do they actually do though? Like what happens in real life? And so I'm like looking at these websites and like you see these comments that just make you like want to laugh out loud. It'll be like a code comment. It'll be like you reusable styles start here. And you're like, you know, a thousand lines into this document. And you're like, so what do you think those other ones are, buddy? Like you <laughs> can reuse those puppies. But you start to see these weird, like the same pattern. Every single system I looked at, which was that people break down to using these really long selectors and then setting 
one property, one value, like just a whole bunch of things and then float left or like a whole bunch of classes with like an ID and another ID and a whole bunch of classes and then text align center. You can tell it's this mental model of they're trying to do one thing, right? Like they're just like in this like one context, I need this text align to be set to center and then I need to like get out of here. Like the myth they sell you is like, oh, you can just like edit this class and it'll propagate everywhere through your whole system. Or like, that's why I don't like variables. When people are like, oh, you can just update this variable and it'll change everywhere. It's like, what? (laughs) That sounds horrible. Um, I mean, conceptually, it sounds great. But in practice, I have not found this to be beneficial for anybody. Like, it's just a bunch of things that are coupled together that people are like, oh, now all this other stuff is broken because we updated this one thing. It was interesting to see these systems break down, though. And this was right before I started to build tachyons. But there was partly a response to seeing how people always seem to use CSS, which is that they want to do one or two things to a page. And then they don't want to break anything else. And they can get out. And so answering that question for me was saying, like, well, the real encapsulation is in the HTML. Like, once it's in the CSS, it's global. It's being downloaded by every single page, right? And that in that system of writing CSS, it never ends. Every single time somebody says, we need to build a new component, somebody's like, well, I'm gonna put some BEM classes on this, and like they write more CSS. <laughs> but they're not writing any new CSS from their system. Um, and that seems like a weird model to me. But I think that in practice, it becomes a weird model. And that's why you see 700 classes and then some single property. That's why React is interesting to me, because it's bundling all of that together right Right. like the function the the html and the styling all into these components yeah Um, i don't know what do you think of that no i mean i think that that's along the same lines of yeah it's like definitely a progression beyond like just css and how everything interacts but yeah i think it totally makes sense uh i don't have anything cooler to say about it than that like i i really love that model um every React code base I've been in, like it seems to lend itself to better CSS management. Like Mm -hmm. I think that Rails is weird in that it almost promotes like horrible architecture thinking. It's like, cool, here's a new view. Like here's a new CSS partial. And I get what, again, they're trying to like provide this concept of encapsulation. Like that's all everybody's trying to do. It's like, here are the classes that map to this view, but it's just not, it's not accurate for like how your code should be architected. In my opinion, you know, if that works for you and it solves all your problems, like more power to you. But I have found that to like create problems. And then it's like people are trying to borrow views or like styles from other views and stuff's in like multiple partials. And yeah, I'm not here to complain about Rails. So can we back up? Um, I'm curious how you ever even got into design and CSS and started writing code. Oh, man. So, um, yeah, my first job, I was a studio art major in college and I was not very good at art, but I loved making stuff look better. And yeah, I lucked out and was applying for grad schools uh, at my and like living out of my friend's house. And my friend's dad owned this design studio and he offered me a job um, at a college. So I just packed up my car and like drove out to Los Angeles from Ohio. And uh, yeah, we worked on amusement parks and museums. It's kind of known as like experiential design. It's like the fancy buzz word for it. Uh, But it really just means like amusement park design and museum design. Mostly museums are 
like redesigned on the inside, like a single exhibit, they might get a new piece. So they're like re-showcasing a piece. And then amusement parks, like sometimes you're designing a section or sometimes you're coming up with a concept for an entire new park. So yeah, that was a really interesting first job to have because it put so much emphasis on writing. So much of the beginning of our process was just writing uh, stories that you've got to be able to traverse multiple ways through the park and have this story that makes sense, but also has like some sense of progression, um, which is a whole challenge in and of itself. And you have visual storytelling aspects um, that you're trying to sell people on. But yeah, for like the first week, it's just research and writing, research and writing, um, which I think totally affected how I approached the web, which is my first response to everything is like let me do some research and i'm gonna write about this for a little, little that's bit of awesome time. um yeah so like one day you'd be like building 3d models and another day you'd be out taking photos and looking at what other people had done when you're talking about amusement park design it uh, reminds me uh accuracy pending it's like at a disney park you're always within x number of feet from a trash can and i think at like disney world you could walk from one part one side of the park to the other and the song would sound continuous to you because they've placed speakers mm -hmm. so strategically that there's never a volume difference. Is that what, like, the kind of stuff you're thinking about? Or, um, like, I didn't have to think about that <laughs> stuff, but that is stuff that people think about, like, uh, in the firm that I worked in. Yeah, they really think at all the different levels. And it's pretty fascinating to, like, we would meet with Disney people and they were sharing their work with us of, like, how to model people walking through a park and it was like some of the same software that Lord of the Rings had used to like do the battle scenes with like all these <laughs> orcas because they wanted to simulate large groups of people walking huh. essentially and make it look realistic and so they had taken that and extended it into like stress testing theme parks so to speak so yeah it was a, it was a lot of crazy stuff to like get exposed to um straight out of college was it any like learning about like predictive patterns and stuff of where people are most likely to go and you yeah, would plan around um, that path. Totally. There are a bunch of different variables there. Uh, that's like the whole thing she was trying to model was, yeah, basically, you know, looking at like how new uh, the rides were and where they were in the park. Yeah. It was like fascinating how that broke down. And I imagine similar for museums as well then, just different. You, your flow problems are a lot different in a museum. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like in an amusement park, you don't want people to wait for a crazy long time like back-to-back -back rides so you try to space out the long waits with the short waits and i don't think museums have crazy long waits most <laughs> of the time that's like not the problem that they're trying to solve two hours to see this exhibit yeah um so from there i went and worked at a web design shop um they were building custom software for casting agents uh which probably sounds funky but i was living in los angeles and uh the guy who was my like manager um actually he was one of the tinder founders he was the guy who invented the right swipe left swipe i've never used the app so i'm i think that's the way you swipe mm -hmm. um yeah and so he was just this awesome first guy to like work for as somebody building digital interfaces um he kind of stressed the importance of reading the html spec and the css spec and one of the other guys i worked with um was just they were both amazing visual designers but they also had a lot of agency writing code and uh so they spent a lot of time with me to develop my agency uh being able to design through writing code um and so like having really good teachers who 
we're invested in knocking hurdles down um, from the get-go. Uh, I think like really impacted how, yeah, I've like moved forward with my career, both in terms of the types of stuff I try to like help my teammates with, but also just like trying to still get that every place I go, like finding people who will, yeah, help knock hurdles down for me or whatnot. That was like something that kind of set my sails in a certain direction on caring about code. But they just used it as such a strong design tool. And the way they automated things with JavaScript was it was hard to deny the power of like what they were able to think through um, because they were so close to the metal. What about after that? Um, as much as I was excited about building casting tools, I started to work for this company that worked with utility companies to get people to use less energy. It was this print project. Uh, it was supposed to be like a six-month contract, but it turned out to be this massive, massive project. They wanted them to use less energy by printing like know, millions right? of pamphlets. <laughs> Step back and think like, why is a company paying you to get people to use less of their product? Like, which is what the utility company is doing, right? It's like saying like, no, we want people to use less energy. I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. The, there's an interesting business model around that though, which is that utility companies get charged or like their charging is totally dictated by the states so mm -hmm. that sometimes they can get like tax penalties. Sometimes they get uh, tax bonuses if they like hit certain metrics. So they have a bunch of different reasons depending on what state they're in to like get people to use less energy. But yeah, that's where I met my friend Jackson Black and where we got to work together for a couple of years, became roommates for a little bit. We were working on a physical print grid at the time. And that was like this project that we did a pretty big deep dive into how grids work mm -hmm. in the world of print so i was there for i think three and a half years and then went to this company called stitch fix which jackson and i worked at together again and we kind of helped build their brand a little bit and put their web product together uh, and then i was at salesforce for about a year working on their design systems team and that was pretty interesting just because it's so many designers uh it's such a large scale they have a pretty robust style guide right yeah that was the first project i worked on oh, cool. um yeah that was you know, for me, the challenge of like, can, cause that's all single purpose classes. Um, if you take a look at the code and so that was like one of the first test beds of, can we get these visual designers to just use these little utilities? And if they don't have to write CSS, can they build components that are like reusable? And a bunch of people took to it really quickly and built some really cool stuff. So that was kind of a fun project. Feels like since then, and certainly in the last year, style guides are like the main thing I've seen people building, like a lot of companies yeah. are, are really trying to make that a thing. Um, and I think it's for probably the same reasons that we've been talking about that, that CSS is hard for teams just to standardize that. Um, you said one thing about like trying to work with people that'll help you knock down your hurdles. What are your current hurdles? Hmm. Working with Brent again. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, for me, I want the internet to be better. And so there are a lot of hurdles to getting that. Um, so, I, you know, I think both like short term and small and then like really large. So for me, I mean, personally, I would love to be better at manipulating data with JavaScript and um, building apps that people can actually interact with. Like it's really easy for me to do one-off static visualizations locally on my computer, but um, building them into reusable tools is something that I'm not 100% slick with yet. But yeah, besides that, I mean, it's just getting the internet to a better place where it's more performant. Um, so anything I can do to help people. Have you guys seen iOS 9 has like blocker apps 
Yeah, I content blockers. I have not seen this. So you can get apps that will block certain kinds of content in so Safari. So ad blocking, mainly. Ad blocking. And uh, I think it's so strange that it's come to this, right? Like right. we've gotten so bad or like lazy about writing probably on the JavaScript side and like serving ads and stuff that now we have entire teams building products to block that specific Let's not content. call it lazy because right. someone did a lot of work to make those work well for the internet then. It wasn't a great solution, but it it was solving a business goal, right? Like, but is it not lazy to to do that without performance in mind? I don't think that was top of mind when a lot of these tools were built. I do think that a lot of people now, like The Verge, for example, or iMore, who have some of the like worst, heavy, insane ad stuff going on, who are the most they're going to be the most affected by these content blockers. People should like spend time making better stuff. Was it a uh, Marco Arment that went nuts on The Verge a couple weeks ago? Yeah. Oh man, everyone goes nuts on The Verge because it's really bad. I haven't visited The Verge without a content blocker in yeah. months. Yeah. Their load time, if you go there without like an ad blocker, is forty seconds. I mean, it happens, and I think that that's, you know, you're in a situation where you probably have developers who know that and like know how to make it fast. Oh, it's probably so frustrating. They have, they have an incredible team too. Like Jason Santa Maria works there, and he's amazing. We definitely have. I mean, especially with ad stuff, the problem is it's so many different third-party things, and yeah. you know, a big part of performance is just how many requests you're making, and so if everything needs to be like hitting some external server every single time. It's hard to optimize that even if you know the best practices. So especially if it's not your server, so someone else is in control of it and you can't really hand like you can't manage it. Yeah. Right. Um but you know, they're like just trying to make money. Like people are just trying to figure out how all this stuff works at the end of the day. And the internet's still pretty new. Yeah, we've had it for what, twenty five years? Yeah. Which is like not that long to like study stuff, right? <laughs> and it's changed a little bit. Well, we're actually out of time. Anything you want to plug before you go? Yeah, the grid. Uh, hopefully we have some cool things coming down. Is it life. vaporware? I don't even know what that word means. Um, Is it going to exist? Oh, totally. I, I saw the question on uh, DN and it's just like, is the grid vaporware? And John Gold's in there answering every single question. Like, nah, dude, it's pretty chill. <laughs> I totally, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's gonna, is it going to exist. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's definitely a case of they don't want to be irresponsible uh, releasing a product that they're not like super proud of. Um, so, you know, making a system that you can feed like any content into and just have work really well is, yeah, it's a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, and yeah, I mean, all of Jackson's work, I think with base CSS and CSS stats um, definitely should be checked out. You know, one cool thing about base CSS is you just learn a lot about CSS, like with his documentation and um, his design docs. So, yeah. And then eventually, if I ever release this book, like that. Yeah. Cool. Future book. Yeah. You can use Tachyons to visit it in the post future. Yes, that's true. Cool. Well, thanks so much for yeah. taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Brian. Bryn. What is the sum of the first six triangular numbers making it a tetrahedral number as well as the sum of six consecutive primes? It's also a tetranaci number and a pronic number if that helps. Okay. Um, actually, that does help. Uh, is it 50, 56? It is. Oh, hey. It's twice a perfect number making it a semi-perfect number. Well, weird because this is also the 56th episode of Design Details. Completely unrelated, I'm sure. I definitely didn't just look up 56 on Wikipedia. No, no, no. Of course not. And I definitely did the math. 
Anyways, we hope you enjoyed listening to episode 56. If you did, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. Or if you want to chat with us in person, we have a Slack team with 500 people in there talking about design, development, critique, tools, jobs, our new podcasts that are launching. To join that, just go to spec.fm slash slack. Enter your email address. We'll send you an invite. And we'd love to chat with you. And we have a new podcast coming out tomorrow. First episode of Immutable comes out tomorrow morning. That's going to be awesome. I'm super excited. That's uh, Sam Sofis and I. And we take five listener questions. You can find it at spec.fm. Before we go, thanks so much to our two sponsors that made this episode possible. Once again, I'd like to thank Harvest. Harvest is a beautiful business tool for tracking time spent on client projects. What it does is lets you start a timer from anywhere and it tracks all your time spent on a project and then it outputs it into a billable invoice just for you. It integrates with a ton of tools. Really fantastic. Sarah and I used it for a long time. You can check it out at getharvest.com and start tracking time painlessly. There's a 30-day free trial on a new account and when that is done, you can enter coupon code design details at checkout and save 50% off your first month. Thanks once again to Harvest. Also, thank you to Icon Finder. They are the largest source of premium vector icons on the web. They have almost 600,000 icons in their library that are going to be perfect for any design project you're working on. They have an awesome service called Icon Finder Pro. It starts at just nine bucks a month, gets you access to 25 downloads a month of these gorgeous icons and 70% of what you pay goes straight back out to the original designers of the icons. We love Icon Finder for supporting the community, for supporting the show. And we hope you'll check them out at iconfinder.com. Use the promo code ROBOT to save 50% off your first month. Thanks so much to Icon Finder. See you on Wednesday with Robin and Roxanne Cladier.